beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Um, we're here doing another uh, amazing interview and really happy that we get to do this. Thank you again to all our listeners uh, across the world, uh, wherever you are, Canada, United States, Europe, uh, Asia, Africa, because we really appreciate it. You know, you're taking the time out of your day to listen to a long form type of uh, podcast, and we just hope that you get something out of it. And uh, yeah, and uh, let's just get into it right now. We have on with us today, uh, Kevin Ulis, and he is a BAFTA winning filmmaker and writer of the acclaimed Death Guide. My Father's Wake, How the Irish Teach Us to Live, Love, and Die. Uh, Kevin has reported on famines, wars, and plagues all over the world for the New York Times and The Guardian. As a documentary filmmaker, he has filmed in the Middle East and directed the Emmy-nominated Cult of the Suicide Bomb television series. Uh, and he is also the producer-director of a compelling new stage work, uh, Wonders of the Wake, that revives the last art of Irish keening and celebrates the ancient rites of the Irish wake. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, we actually first met at a uh, the Death Symposium, which was held in Toronto. And, uh, you know, you had a really compelling uh, talk there, talking about, uh, you know, death of your father, uh, you know, illuminating us to the Irish wake and uh, the different nuances and, and rights that go along with that. And uh, it was just a, a fascinating time and uh, really enjoyable. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, the wake is one of the oldest rites of humanity. Um, both the Neolithic people who lived 6,000 years BC, uh, even the, the Aztecs and the ancient Greeks, um, they all. Uh, they all basically had a funereal rite that shares common elements. And that is obviously like the gathering of the, of the living around the bereaved, the gathering around the actual physical presence of a corpse. And I mean, all these different cultures came together at this moment of death in the Irish in the wake, really, to bridge what you might call the wound of mortality. And uh, that still has an awful lot to teach us it, it, it really does because it, 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 it our, our ancestors across every human culture found a lot of value in the wake a lot of therapeutic value both in terms of the grief process in terms of support for those who are bereaved and in a societal acceptance of death because in a way that the, the best way to learn about death is obviously to see other people die around you and that is, of course, what used to happen um, to our ancestors all the time, is that they lived amongst the dying. I mean, what we do now is we tend to sort of shun the dead, the dying and the dead. We, we sort of send them off to hospitals. We don't really lower our voices, pull the curtains across. We don't go to funerals in the same way. It's quite common, obviously, for people never to have seen a dead body. Yet mortality is a you know, 100% universal event. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Uh, it just seems like, you know, and here in uh, Western society, I can only speak for Canada and North America, but it seems like we've distanced ourselves from the process itself. We've um, kind of allowed other people to kind of do the work that we normally used to do as a community, as, as you know, family, as loved ones of the deceased. And you're right. Uh, 
until you kind of experience it yourself, it, it you know, you might rationally, logically kind of understand that idea. I like for just to take my myself for an example, I kind of knew that we were getting away from that and maybe it was important to kind of do those things. But until, um, you know, this this past winter, my grandmother passed away until I actually got to do that. I never really it didn't connect fully about the importance of it. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, like you've described, it, there was a richness to it. There was a there was a feeling of uh, this is what it's supposed to be. It was comforting. Uh, we were all there as a family. Um, she was dying, you know, within a week. And, and every night we sat there, we took turns and all that. And so I saw that value. And, and like you said, that's something that seems like we've gotten away from in North American culture. But um, in Ireland, it's definitely something that's uh, looked upon differently. Well, it's interesting how we, you know, have come to view death in our society. I mean, the, the in a sense, the Western death machine, I, I write about this in, in my book, My Father's Wake. You know, that's a machine that sort of takes over, that medicalizes death. Um, you know, one of the functions of, of Western hospitals is to really dispose of the dead uh, or the dying. It's, uh, you get, you get, kind of get sucked into this machine. Um, your death is medicalized. Uh, then, then you literally, you know, leave the ward in a solid-sided trolley. Uh, you end up in a, in a kind of mortuary. And if, because people don't have a, a communal understanding of death in the same way as people did two or three generations ago, um, we've, we've come to really believe that the state or somehow officials of the state, even like undertakers who obviously are private businessmen, really, but we come to believe that the undertakers are, are part of the process. And it really does sort of come down to who controls the body. You know, who do you, like with your grandparents, um, do you have to negotiate with a, a bureaucracy in order to work out what kind of funereal rights you, you want. I mean, it, for instance, I'll talk about like in England. Um, in England, there's a very high percentage of cremations. Most people die in hospital. It takes two or three weeks in order to get a cremation slot in if you're in the south of England. So you, you in a sense, by necessity, you have to have uh, an undertaker you have to have the hospital mortuary. You have to sort of negotiate with the local council uh, as to when the funeral of your beloved dead will take place. And normally that bureaucracy, it takes about two or three weeks. So you can't really have a wake. You don't really control the body. It's that you become subject to the forces of the state, really. And that, of course, is completely different from the rest of human history. In the rest of human history, we gathered round our dying. Um, we, when they died, we practiced the wake. Uh, there was feasting. There was drink. There was a gathering of individuals of, of the family and community together, and then the burial took place very quickly. And these were quite concentrated events with great emotional power. But when you have a dislocated you know, a death and then a very dislocated funeral that could be weeks, even a month later, longer afterwards, then it, it breaks up the entire ancient psychological rhythm of grieving, of death, of gathering. And I think it has a, it has a very um, traumatic effect 
it, it privatizes grief uh, in a way that our ancestors, they publicized their grief. They, they grieved and they keened in public. They came together to keen and grieve. Whereas we've, we've resorted, or not resorted, we've fallen into this very individual, private experience of death. That's an, yeah, you're, that's so interesting. And I'm really curious about keening because you've mentioned it a couple of times. What exactly is that? Well, keening, it, it's really interesting that the Aztecs who were separated for over 25,000 years from the, the cultures of the old world. I mean, when you think about it, they, the sort of bridge into North America was 12,000 years ago. So that journey, they, so they, who the Aztecs were, you know, their common origin, they were separated from the old world cultures for 20, at least 25,000 years. Yet they practiced a form of keening of, of women, um, which is grieving and crying and uh, um, lamenting out loud on the death of a sort of individual within the community, as exactly the same way that the ancient Egyptians did as well. So that you can see in funereal tombs in, in Upper Egypt, in the actual inside of the tombs, that you can see, and uh, the Irish, they're called the Emroh, uh, keening women and you, you used to hire these women in sometimes the mourners professional mourners to keen and grieve over the dead so so when the franciscan uh, scholars came and saw the aztec culture they saw exactly the same thing that that aztec women some of them were professionally paid to to mourn and and keen at the the death uh, at the graveside one of the aspects of this is it's, it's a, a form of heightening the emotion at the graveside it is not about repressing it's the very opposite of you know, the stiff upper lip and don't show emotion it's designed to actually bring out a catharsis of emotion to heighten the, the grieving sometimes it's, it's related to status this may sound sort of cynical but it's the the, the more wealthy you were the probably the more uh, professional mourners, the more keening women you hired. If, of course, you were very important in the community, you probably didn't need to, to hire them, that they came out anyway. And it was a, a way of, um, it's interesting, it's a way of actually bringing a psychic, and literally I talk about it, it's a psychic unity. So that when I grieve, if I grieve now in the Western Death Machine, I cry and I sort of grieve alone. But even at my own father's wake, the, the women in the household, they cried together, that they they found reinforcement and, in a sense, a communal solidarity in being able to cry out loud together to show their grief and emotion for my father. But also, in a sense, it's a way of, of uh, leeching and bleeding out that emotion. It, it's a way of forcing the grieving process faster because you're 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 in a sense you're letting it all hang out that's it's very interesting it's interesting that there are women that that start this because they're i tend to find they tend to be more in tune with their emotions and so i think that's great for a culture 
um, to really said bring out those emotions that are there. But sometimes, especially with men, like we tend to push those down a bit. Um, but when yeah, you yeah, but start, that's that's see, it's yeah. really sorry to interrupt. It's really interesting because in the Iliad, which was is the great uh, Greek war poem about the fall of Troy, written by Homer in 850 BCE. Some of the most powerful keening actually takes place amongst the men. And um, it takes place principally with the, 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 the greatest Greek warrior at all of all, which is Achilles. So when Achilles' lover, Patroclus, is, is killed in battle, the first thing that when news comes back to the Greek camp where Achilles is, is he uh, begins to, he tears out his hair and he cries and he keens and he rubs dirt in his face. And later on, when they actually gather, they, they retrieve Patroclus's body. He places his body in the middle of a, like a kind of circle. And then he, him and his soldiers come with their chariots and they ride round and round uh, Patroclus's body and they weep. And so much so, Homer says that the, that the breastplates and the ground were wet with tears as these warriors, the Myridons, and it's also man-slaying Achilles, a very, very frightening character, that he weeps and, and keens out loud. And, and Achilles says this thing that's really interesting, or Homer says, he says, we shall have our fill of the pleasures of sorrow. And what he really does mean by that is this, we shall have this, you know, great grief catharsis, this unleashing of emotion. Probably the, the only other time when human beings are allowed to sort of utterly uh, unleash all of their emotions without abandon is in literally in sexual ecstasy, in a kind of orgasm. But in the keening, you're allowed to, in a sense, you're allowed to, to, to in a, you know, forget all holding back and just let all these emotions flow out of you. The power of it is, of course, is that you're doing that in a collective unity, that you're doing it with other people. And it's far more safer. It's, it's, we, we'd be really frightened that if you gave in to your emotion, that somehow we'd, we'd go mad forever and we'd never come back. But what the keening does collectively is it, it in a sense, I think it vindicates the, the rightness of, of this grief at the time the, the power of these emotions is a way of actually working your way through death together rather than trying badly to work your way through death alone. That's very interesting. And I see that. I see it as a therapeutic mechanism to kind of uh, allow that moment during the most appropriate time, really. And also, like in my own family, I saw I've, I've, I've witnessed that with a lot of older Indian people, a lot of like, I remember my grandmother, you know, when my grandfather died, uh, she, she wept pretty, uh, dramatically and loud. And, and, you know, it was a bit scary as a kid kind of looking at this and witnessing it because it's, it wasn't as common for me to see. And so I think 
it just alludes to some of the more ancient cultures. They still had remnants of that, especially, you know, if you go to India, it's a very emotionally driven country, very passionate. I think maybe what happened is as Western society kind of took its hold on everyone, and I'm not blaming the British. I'm, I'm just saying that like <laughs> maybe some of those Victorian ideals, you know, the properness, the etiquette kind of took its hold a little bit more. And so I think people even if they had an old culture, old tradition, they kind of changed and, and modified them to kind of represent the new way of kind of the new etiquette. Uh, I think that's maybe what happened. It's a complicated it's psychological and cultural and medical process. Or in a sense, the, the uh, again, I call it the Western death machine. The, the rise of the Western death machine you know, begins um, in the mid 1800s, uh, the first sanitarium in the world for tuberculosis. You know, tuberculosis was a disease that killed one in four of the human population. It was one of the oldest and is still one of the oldest bacteriological infections of mankind. You know, the ancient Egyptians died of TB, Neand the Neanderthals died of TB. It's a really, really old bacterium is like at least a million years old and so it's plagued humanity for eons and eons and if you if you joined a, a monastery or if you joined a nunnery in the 18th and 19th century you stood a really good chance of actually dying of tuberculosis uh, any closed community the slums of uh, both the slums of america and the slums of uh, the industrial revolution of england so this was a very sort of prevalent disease now up until, uh, literally up until the, the Second World War, there wasn't a medical cure for tuberculosis. But in 1863, in Poland, we had the first sanitarium, which was basically you took people with TB out of the community and you sent them to a separate place. You isolated them. And that was really the beginning of what you might call a a sort of separation between the dying and the living that we that as as the medical profession grew more and more powerful we began to abstract the dying from amidst the living i mean one of the falsities that we have in our current conception of death is people say it's a terrible crime if a parent should bury a child yeah uh, you often hear this it says no parent should ever bury a child it's completely unnatural i don't know if you have you ever heard people say that about you know it's such a, a common trope all time well the thing is is that for most of our history as a species and up until really the 1920s but certainly every victorian parent and every human parent before them constantly buried their children the infant mortality is you you were lucky if 50 percent of your children actually managed to make it beyond the age of five. So we've, what we've done is we've, we've completely re reversed a sort of bi biological reality and sort of converted it into an act of faith, almost like outrage that you know, children should automatically die after their parents. But our whole history as a species was the reverse. So it, it's just that we've formulated a a conception of death where it becomes more and more abstracted, that people have very little, their own personal experience of 
of death, of someone in their family dying, of someone in their community dying, of seeing dead bodies, of going to funerals, of touching and even kissing the bodies of the dead. I mean, there's a, we'd often think now it's, it's, it's a revulsion and disgust. I mean, how could you possibly see a dead body or why would you touch them? But obviously, throughout most of human history, that's what we did all the time. So interesting. You really know your history, I gotta say. <laughs> it's it, the most interesting thing, though, is when you think about you think about death in the past and death now. I've I've just come back from Sicily, in uh, in obviously in Italy, and had a fantastic. Uh, is a, a short holiday, but you can go to a church. I was in a church two days ago, and at the back of the church, uh, there was the relics of um, the dead bishop. And there's quite a lot of dead bishops. So literally in a glass cage right in front of you is the pelvis and the femur bones um, and other bits of bones all, all in a kind of silver cage or something like that. You can look at them through the glass and then above, above it is a portrait of this bishop. And uh, you know, the, obviously the, the claim was that these are like holy relics. But you're seeing literally bits of a dead body, you know, on display. I mean, it might just be the bones, but there's no shame. It, they're thinking this is absolutely fantastic. You can come up here and you can pray and that these bones might have some sort of um, positive effect. And so there's no shame or disgust or, my goodness, how could you possibly see that? It's rather the reverse. It's on show. They, they, they take great pride. And these, um, and in a sense, these you might call it offerings and and marks of mortality. That there's less fear. There was less fear of the depiction of death. I'm not saying that they were not. They're just as afraid of dying as we are, but they didn't have the same paranoia. And death was a much more every other day occurrence. And so what happens is that people learned how to deal with, with death. They learned, most importantly, not that death isn't just about me as an individual or you as an individual. Death is a social phenomenon because although I will die and my death is important to me, it's not important. It's not very important to other people. But we all must find some social mechanism by which we can deal with the bereaved, the consequence of death, how we can face our own death, how we can learn from other people. It's the social experience of death which is the most important, rather than de seeing death as an unremitting personal tragedy, because it's not. No, that's, uh, it's, it's very true. And it's interesting because I look at our culture, and it's very anti-aging too. So it's not even like anti-death, it's just anti-aging. And because I see this with my mom and, you know, she's getting older, but she has, you know, like she needs to dye her hair a little bit. She needs to, she looks in the mirror and feels sad that she's older. And I think that's very interesting because I don't think that's probably the case back in the day where I think being older was a sign of maybe wisdom or accomplishment that you could live so long. Now it's like people don't want to look old, but they want to live forever. Well, it's interesting American politicians and even American broadcasters, if you think about Nancy Pelosi, um, who's 78, <laughs> you know, most 
most 78-year-olds are, um, you know, they're, they're long retired and, you, you know, they're happily ensconced in the retirement home or we wouldn't think um, that they would be actively engaging in one of the great offices of state. And if, if I suppose even in, in, if you think about it, uh, she's the third most important office holder under the Constitution of the United States. And, you know, Donald Trump, uh, is he 72? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's over 70 for sure. Yeah, so th these are considerable. And obviously, there, bo with both of those individuals, there is a considerable amount of daily work that must be undertaken because uh, they don't look quite look that, uh, that age. So I think you're right there that this, sort of anti-aging, a sense of, of, of appearances, of, of putting in a lot of work to make yourself um, appear younger than you are. It's grounded in obviously a sort of like death denial that, that um, there's only my individual life. What is, what's important about older attitudes towards death is that it's a communal experience, that if you look at medieval attitudes towards death, that people sort of believe that, in, they believe in that kind of like fate, that you, um, you went through life and then in a sense, the cords got cut, that your fate was inevitable. And so there was no point in fighting death, that you, you could come to, it's not that you you ran into the arms of death, but when death came, it was inevitable. And so it was no point in wasting your energy trying to outrun death. What you had to do is you just had to accept that now your time had come and that was how it was going to be. And that you prepared yourself for that, to, to be, in, you prepared yourself for for death to come when it was going to come in some of the old french uh chivalric poetry they they talk about they could feel death close yeah and that was often the thing on the deathbed is that people were sick and sometimes they recovered and other times he says no no i think it's, it's i feel death is coming for me now but people weren't terrified at that thought they just thought that that was a natural consequence of human life that you ran out of um, life and that was how it was going to be. Yeah. And definitely if people uh, back then, you know, a couple hundred years or even longer than that, were um, weren't living longer. So they're seeing death around them, especially quicker. They're, they're seeing it in their own lives. They're seeing, they're having their children die early. So then mm. they see death a little more, but uh, you know, back to what you were saying is, it seems like, you know, when when people are against aging, that's just obviously aging is just another way of saying dying. So like they're against dying, you know, we're so biased towards life affirming things. But that's a death affirming concept that people shy away from, you know, looking in the mirror. Oh, no, I'm aging. Oh, well, that's a negative thing somehow. And so then dying by relation becomes a negative thing almost yeah that you 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 see death as a kind of individual extinction so it's it's the extinction of me and therefore is a t 
terrifying negative event. And strangely, with the Western death machine, I think that this we 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 actually have given rise to more and more individual death fear, because as we've abstracted the dying from a social setting, we've also lost an understanding of uh, a communal experience of death. That we don't, and by a communal experience of death, I mean we all remember from our sort of childhood various fairy stories, you know, there's Little Red Riding Hood, uh, The Big Bad Wolf. We we pass down these stories from generation to generation. Maybe now people do it more, even it's like Disney, The Lion King, or their favorite shows. But we each generation, we, we pass on stories. But what the story that we're not passing on now is the story of death. So that when someone does die in your family, You've lost uh, a communal understanding, a communal mechanism. What do we do now? Um, well, we, we, what we normally people would do is we, we'll do it like we did it in that story. But death has become so abstracted that literally people are confused when a relative dies in hospital. They just don't know what to do. They think, what, what, what happens now? Who's going to tell us what to do? What do we do with a funeral? And some of that is to do with the fact that um, people are living longer and so that you it could be in that your family it was 30 years since you had another close familial death but the, 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 the bit where that's wrong is there have been other deaths you know that obviously every community we, we die at the rate of 1% a year which means that if you you know if you live in a, a town of 10,000 people um, hundred people are going to die each year no it's actually even in a thousand um i'm getting confused so in, like in a, in a city like new york which is 8.5 million 85,000 people will die each year um we're all part of that story but what's happening is that we we go to less and less funerals we have our our in a sense our life journey is smaller um, we don't reach out to the wider community. We don't go to our great aunt twice removed funeral. We don't go to the funerals of colleagues, the fathers of colleagues at work. And so death becomes smaller and smaller. And that deprives us of that ability to tell that story of knowing what to do at a funeral, of knowing how to deal with the bereaved, of knowing basically how to learn how to die ourselves. Yeah, I remember in your talk, you're, you mentioned about, you know, in the Irish communities, you would know, you'd have like maybe 100 um, funerals in your lifetime. And I've only had maybe four I've been a part of, and many of those were closed casket and stuff. Um, but so I think there's a huge point there about death being present almost every year in someone's life to sort of remind the person and to, to see them. And the one thing I want to say is when my dad died, this whole conversation is very interesting. Because when my dad died, he was embalmed. And then, you know, they put the makeup on him. And then I'm thinking now, what did he actually look like? You know, like they wanted to make him look like he was alive, kind of. But what did he actually look like without the makeup, with all that? To actually, what, what, is, what does death look like? And that's something that was taken away from me in sort of that mm. Western uh, medical sort of machine. 
just because yeah. that's what people do. But I'm really curious now what that image would have been like for me and how that would well, have it, induced more emotion, I think, too. Yeah. The one thing that it is interesting that we are, um, we're sort of like meaty inflated balloons. We don't really think about that, but we talk about blood pressure. And obviously if someone, um, there's a moral panic on in Britain at the moment about stabbing and people are, you know, you stab and literally what obviously happens is people bleed out. And within two or three minutes, once you lose pressure, um, then you, you'll die. You know, so, so that we, we are creatures that are, as I say, we're, the human body is like a kind of meaty inflated balloon. If you're trying to translate what that pressure is, blood pressure into like car tire pressure, then the blood in your, your body is about three pounds per square inch. Yeah, it's a long way from a car tire. But that's, that um, pressurized blood yeah, is, is the thing that actually makes your face rosy if you're Caucasian. It pumps up your cheeks. It fills up the veins in your hands. It, it gives you a kind of like slightly spruced up, slightly inflated. We don't think about it like that. But obviously, when someone has died, then the pressure stops. And what ha really happens physically is that the blood drains. Um, if, you're, if the person's sort of uh, lying flat, then it, the blood drains to the lower limbs of the body. So it drains to the back or it, drain, it will drain down to the back, the back of the legs. And so that means really that you facially, that you, in a sense, the, the cheeks can um, sag a little, that the skin obviously becomes very sallow, that you, it becomes um, slightly more yellow. Uh, it's a bit like when someone says, you know, if you, if you look very unwell, you say, oh my goodness, you don't look very well. But it's, it's like that. It's like worse, though. <laughs> the, the Irish have got a really, I think it's very tender hypocrisy uh, that when they go to see a corpse, um, they always try to think of really nice things to say. So they'll say, Aren't she, isn't she looking grand again? Yeah. <laughs> or, um, my God, she doesn't look a day over 50. Or your mother, she always had lovely skin. Now, there is, these are small little... Um, lies and hypocrisies. <laughs> the, the dead don't look well at all, I think. Um, the other thing which is uh, incredibly interesting and is quite a shock, because I know that you've shared talk about your father. When I um, had my first personal dead, um, the first real shock, that I, I'd grown, grown up in an Irish wake tradition and I'd seen dead bodies before. But the first, in the sense, that personal death is still a very significant psychological hurdle. And basically, I was 19, and my brother, um, who was 26, had died of leukemia. And I saw him in the funeral home. Um, he died in hospital. It had been a pretty agonizing death. Um, and I saw him in this funeral home in, it was in Scotland, actually. And I, I remember going to see him and touching him and also kissing him. And the greatest shock, of course, was that he was so cold, so deathly cold. And that, again, is the shock 
of those who've not um, experienced the touch and sight of the dead is every every human being that you've ever touched before touching a dead person has been a warm-blooded mammal you know they're, they're hot that that we instinctively think that that's what human beings feel like but obviously dead dead human beings are as cold as stone they're as cold as a fridge they're as cold as a stone lying outside in the cold stone and that reality is one of the great shocks of um of the meaning of death really that literally that physiological transformation of them both being that person, the, 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 they're the dead body. They, you know, it, we can get really confused here because we often think like, oh, we talk about the spirit has gone and they've gone. No, no, what, what has happened is this person who we've loved, possibly hated, lived with, have very mixed emotions about, but who we've touched and known and talked to, they've become dead. You know they're dead, and it it's that transformation from the state of life into death. It's not that they're living. I mean, other people have got views of the afterlife, and I really respect you know other people's belief systems. But the physical person um, who was that that living person, their body is still there. Um, their identity, who they were, is still manifested in that flesh that cold flesh and that's why i think it's so important really i think that's very important for the grief process in that if we just if the people that we have loved you know they're sick in bed or they're walking around and then they disappear you know it's a closed casket we never see them again then psychologically we're never really sure what happened that we really, what we do is we're digging a, an absence into the world. That's where they were, but we've not, in, we're not psychologically absolutely certain in the way that you do need to be, I think, to have a very healthy grieving process. That they have, they were once living, then they died. I've seen their body. I've taken part in a funereal rite along with other people as we. We, we basically lay them to rest and then we move on. And then sometimes those individuals reoccur to us in our dreams. They, they come back to us. They don't, the, the, their, their psychological presence doesn't just disappear when you put them in a box in the ground. That's interesting. And I, I, I got this idea or feeling that it's like the detachment process has value. That's that's got uh, significance right there from the physical form, like detaching your concept of what that person was in their physical form, and it it, it made me think about. Um, I used to do some Buddhist readings and Buddhist meditations, and there's one meditation that specifically instructs you to envision yourself in the ground, envision worms eating your flesh, envision the bones, and at first thought it sounds morbid and it, it sounds like something you can't get value from but in that meditation itself it, it helps you to detach from your own individual 
physical form and body. And I think uh, that's something that you touched upon uh, the value of detaching almost and seeing some, seeing a person die, seeing the, like you said, the blood rush from certain organs, the cold touch, uh, what have you, whatever, you know, I think that's, that's, that seems to have a value. Well, the most important thing is uh, we're doing something by, by retraining ourselves to kind of accept death. We're doing something that is just perfectly normal. Yeah. I mean, uh, people die all the time. Everyone dies. I mean, we, sometimes you hear that too much in death books, you know, it's our one common denominator. But throughout human history, we as a species, we have had to learn how to cope with uh, the, the sick and the dying and the dead. It's part of our human history. And it's also obviously part of our individual history. The, the, the main problem in the Western uh, mode of death at the moment is that we personalize it. And we keep talking about like my death and, you know, what do I do? My death is not really interesting. Social death is much more interesting because as an individual, you are going to experience more deaths around you because that's the way that society works. You will also experience your own death up to the moment of death and obviously beyond if people have a, have a belief in the afterlife. But it, how you learn how to die is by seeing how other people learn to die, whether they do it with courage, whether they do it with fear. It's, it's not an academic exercise and you the, doing sort of a death studies PhD at uh, the local uh, the state university or some private college, I can assure you, is of limited value. <laughs> it's much better to, and also I think it's an act of grace, um, to, to volunteer to help out with someone's dying. And mm -hmm. that means when someone goes sick, to take part as a kind of carer, to be part of the process, to you know go to the funeral, to, to be there in any small way you can. It's because that's how that's how people die. They they die little by little every day, one mundane act after another. They need quite a lot of help because it's quite an exhausting process. Um again in our death denial we somehow think, oh that's something that doctors do and nurses, it's it's all kind of medical, that's a medical profession. But but when did that begin? That only began about 150 years ago. If we were living, uh, you know, before that time, then of course it would be the responsibility of the family, of carers. That's how that's how we cared for each other. We cared for each other when we when we were brought into the world, and when we were leaving the world. And that experience was transferred from one generation to the other just like those old fairy stories were transferred from one generation, passed down and down. When my father died in, in the island, Akal Island of the uh, coast of County Mayo, where my family have lived in the same village for 250 years, and my aunt showed my sister how to wash his body. My sister was in her 40s, she'd not washed a dead body, but she washed her own father's dead body and she was taught um, by my aunt, who was a bit not much younger than my father, um, Aunt Tilda, who's still alive, gloriously. And um, she transferred that knowledge down, and this is how you pr pr wash the dead. 
um, much in the same way as the ancient Trojan women washed the body of Hector in the um, again in the Iliad when when Hector's body is returned to Troy, uh, they wash his body, they gather round him in Keen, they have feasting for nine days, and then they burn his body, and then the war begins again. Yeah, it's so interesting, everything you're talking about. I'm really curious for the book you wrote, My Father's Wake, how did that, did that do anything for you in the sense of, you know, helping explain or explore the topic of death more to our culture or to even your own grief of talking about your dad and what you went through? Well, I suppose I thought the moment when I thought I should write that book was uh, literally by my father's bedside. And it was his, by his, his deathbed. And um, I had left the house. It was about five o'clock in the morning. It was on the longest day. Our family house is very close to the Atlantic Ocean, obviously on the wrong side of the ocean, but it's 200 yards away from the Atlantic. And we'd had this death vigil, which had been going for three days. My father um, was in a very small room, a room which one of my brothers had been born in, in a house that he had helped build himself in the 1930s. Uh, As I say, he'd been in this sort of coma, but we'd had this vigil going on like watchers because people strongly believe that you shouldn't die among strangers and that you should never die alone. And although there were, you know, there was some medical care, there was doctors and nurses, but the actual care was undertaken by the community, by neighbors, by his daughters, by sons, by everyone around him. But his death was sort of communal. It was communally owned, really. Anyway, it was by the bedside and I had been going out for this walk and then I was called in by my nine-year-old nephew, Sean, who said, um, who ran after me and said, come quick, Kevin, he's going now. And I went into the room, which is a very small room. And then my father was uh, very emaciated. Um, he'd lost, but he died of pancreatic cancer. And in the end, end stage of pancreatic cancer, you lose all the muscle and flesh. You have a, it's a common thing in cancer called cachexia. So you're really just skeletal. Um, and he, he almost looked like a sort of martyred, like some image of a, I'm not saying he was a saint, but he was so just a, a jumble of bones, really. It's a very skeletal husk. Um, anyway, we... The, my aunt Tilda, who's this, was a leading figure, or kind of keener, a seer, and in Irish she's called the Mban Kinsha, the, the sort of chief, uh, really like a seer, a, a sort of guide. And anyway, she was taking his pulse, and she thought he was about to die. And then she, uh, it went on slightly longer. He didn't kind of quite die, but in the room. I sort of stared around the room and there were 10 people in this very small room. Um, some of whom I'd, I didn't really know very well. Um, some of whom were like strangers, some of whom I had never ever spoken to in my life. And uh, and I was quite shocked by that really. I thought, well, who are they? You know, why are they here? Why are they watching this man die at this particular moment? What did they e- expect to get out of that? And just at that moment, as I was thinking that thought, uh, the Mbankinsha 
struck up this old Catholic prayer, which is the, the rosary, um, which is the five sorrowful mysteries. But really, it could have been a Buddhist chant. It's a very familiar prayer to Irish Catholics. It's the prayer that you learn as a you know four-year-old. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And then the chorus return the chant saying, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And they go back and forth like that, the, the leader and then the chorus. And in that small room, the sound of the chorus saying, Holy Mary, Mother of God, you know, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. That chant grew louder and louder and louder until it was like the loudest sound I've ever heard. Because it was a very small room and the chant bounced off the walls, off the ceiling. And what these people were doing was that involved in a really, like this, this kind of like a lullaby. It was a death lullaby. That they were hoping and expecting and thinking that this man would die at that moment and that the sound that he would hear would be a sound of a very familiar prayer, something that was of comfort, something that he would have known himself as a child. And when I say it was a Catholic prayer, but it could easily have been any death prayer in any religion in the world. It could have been a, a Jewish prayer. It could have been an Islamic prayer. It could have been a Buddhist prayer because it was really just a kind of mantra of sound. And I thought it was, you know, a great act of grace that they were delivering, helping to deliver this man into death. And at the same time, I think for the watchers, the, the prayer was like a ladder, and like a ritual and a means of overcoming their own fear of death because you were seeing someone die literally in front of you and also I think their own excitement you know it's a it was an act of grace it's a kind of blessing it's it, it's an act of experience to say I was there and I saw this person die I don't think it's, there's anything wrong about that I think that's a sort of good thing because that experience would transform their own lives it would arm them this is what it's like when people, someone dies it was a knowledge that they could then pass on in similar situations, in other moments of death. It was something that would even possibly protect them in their own lives, at their own moment of death, because they would have seen this is what it looks like. And I think that's, just to sort of try to summarize that, is there's nothing special about dying. It happens all the time. We just need to learn how to do it again in the way that our ancestors used to do it all the time. They used to study learning how to die every day of their lives because they were in communities where people died around them all the time. That you went to see people, you went to see the sick, and then they were there, then they died, then you went to their funeral, you went to their wake, you saw their dead bodies. It was really, really common. It's our own death tradition that's become so unnatural and attenuated and remote from the reality of death. 
Wow, that's interesting. So interesting. I learned uh, a lot just by talking to you and listening to you a couple times uh, so far about realizing what death was and what it is now and the differences with that. And, you know, like, it's interesting being a part of this, like, the Western culture, you just don't think about it. Like, it's always been like this. But then when you start hearing about the differences, you start questioning the the motives behind you know, death and the business of it all. So, you know, thank you so much for talking about all that sort of stuff. You did mention one thing about the culture, about grief dreams. Uh, so dreams of the deceased loved ones. Is there a cultural kind of thing? Like it's it's okay to have these, it's okay to talk about them in Ireland? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to, um, again, if you go back to, to the Iliad, um, there is a perfect uh, description in the Iliad of you might call a grief dream or the the kind of trauma, um, psychological trauma that people have with the loss of a loved one. And that, again, is between Patroclus and Achilles. Now, for those not familiar with, it, with the, the story of, of the Iliad, basically, um, Patroclus is Achilles' lover. He gets killed by Hector. Achilles gets so angry that he then goes out and he, he kills uh, the, the Trojan champion, uh, Hector. And because he's in such a rage, he refuses to allow uh, Hector's body to be buried. And he, he keeps on desecrating the body and, and re- refusing to move on. He's, he's so consumed with grief for Patroclus that he refuses really to grieve, to move through the process and to give <coughs> both Patroclus and Hector the right of burial. And then one of the books of the Iliad, Patroclus appears in a dream to Achilles. And it is a, it's like a perfect psychological description as written by Homer in 850 BC, where Patroclus says to Achilles is that you must you must bury me properly i'm 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 wandering the earth they're they're not allowing me to cross the river styx to go into hades i cannot find peace in the afterlife until you basically do the right of give me the right of burial and achilles sort of wakes up like that and then he then acts upon it and he he does give patroclus a proper burial one of the things our ancestors believed is that you, the reason for the wake and the reason for the funeral is that you have to lay the dead to rest. You have to lay the dead to rest and sort of um, to, to bring back a natural order to the world. And if you don't do that, then their restless spirits can appear to you in their dreams, in your dreams. They can not just appear in dreams, but they can also interfere with the world of the living that they can out of revenge, you know, bring hexes and stillbirths and um, that there's almost like the dead can interfere with the natural world. Um, so it's a very, again, it's a very, very common um, psychological grief reaction for the recently dead to appear in the dreams of the bereaved for three months, six months, sometimes a whole lifetime. Um, it is, uh, it's part, I think it's a part of love. 
because it's just because someone died doesn't mean to say that your love for them dies at that moment. They live on in you, and it's important that they do live on in you. Yeah, it's 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 interesting when you say that because in Cambodia they have a, a similar kind of theory about like the wandering soul and how it can these dreams can actually can harm you if it's longer than two years past. That means that they're not reincarnated and they're wandering and need your help. And so when they get these dreams, one of the things that they can do these like rituals to try almost to stop having these dreams. But I think it's interesting because there are those dreams where they're asking for assistance to let's say as Homer uh, in Homer's book about, you know, um, bury my body properly. But there's these other dreams you're talking about these love dreams. And I think it's based on your belief that even though you have these love dreams and they can continue for the rest of your life, sometimes people will feel that even that is a sign that maybe that they're wandering. And so it's really interesting about people's beliefs about these dreams and how it can either help them in their grief process or it can actually hinder them um, because then they can get worried about the soul. Mm. When I was um, making films in the Middle East, um, I made a film, a, a series of films called The Cult of the Suicide Bomber. And we used to ask um, the families of suicide bombers, mainly the Palestinian suicide bombers, um, but we would ask them, um, we'd always ask them what we call the dream question. So we would say, does your son appear or daughter, Does do they ever appear to you in your dreams? And and they said they did. Everyone said that they did. That they... Um, and they often said that they, they uh, it's, it's a very complicated grief process around suicide bombing. Um, often the parents don't really know that their son is, uh, as they would, they would call it, martyr themselves, that they're going to blow themselves up and also kill other people. And not every suicide bomber actually manages to kill other people. They often just end up killing themselves or something goes wrong. But even when they do kill, it's it's a horrible. Although people are very angry because they're involved in a in a what they see as a, a, a kind of nationalist uh, struggle. Um, people are still terribly upset, often about the, the the individual loss that they have lost their son. And there's also possibly the guilt that their son has murdered people in a really horrible way getting on a bus, um, blowing themselves up, killing people. Um, sometimes that's a consideration. Um, so it's a complicated uh, thought process. Often in public, people say, yes, he's a martyr, he's fantastic, he's really great. But privately, they're much more conflicted. And they're also grieving. They've also lost someone uh, who's very close to them. But often... In, when we asked the dream question, you know, uh, do they appear in your dreams? And they often said, yeah, they did. And then they said they they also they appeared somewhere green and lush. The Arabic word for it is jannah, which is like paradise. So that there was a, they saw that as a sort of redemptive process. That they these are you know that's a good place to be. It's kind of like being in heaven. No, nobody said, yeah, and there was lots of kind of flames and, and devils <laughs> in the background. But they they felt that they were communicating um, with their dead sons. 
Wow, that's so cool. That's so interesting. Did you ever write about those dreams? Like, did it ever make well, the, it anywhere? I mean, there's a terrible sadness to, you know, um, I do remember there's one father, um, Diab, and uh, his son had blown himself up in a Jewish settlement in Gaza. And uh, it also been filmed um, by a Hamas crew, and they, with a uh, with the connivance of his son Tariq, his son was called Tariq Hamid, and uh, Tariq was like twenty one, and he volunteered, and he felt he was this might be difficult for North American, but he was, he felt himself to be like a Navy SEAL, like a kind of Green Beret, that he was taking the war to the enemy and. So he filmed his own martyrdom meal, his last meal, and then he filmed him in the jeep that was full of explosives. And then they filmed the moment when he like blew up the jeep and he tried to kill four Israeli soldiers. Um, and it was very dramatic footage. You know, you think, my goodness, this is shocking. But for his father, it was also the moment of his son's death. You know, that was the moment like filming and and his father had kind of watched it again and again um and there was a sort of terrible sadness um about the father uh, that was difficult to you know we want to say oh look he's just a sort of terrorist dad and you know here he's celebrating this victory you know this bloodthirsty how awful but i just thought he was very sad and um that he grieved for the loss of his son. He possibly regarded his son as a way that people would regard their son as a hero if he was in the American Armed Forces or Canadian. I mean, there was that. But deep down, um, he he hugely obviously regretted the loss of his son. And then he said to me something which I had absolutely no power to change. He said, that, you know, I wonder if you could ask ask the Israelis to give me back the bits of my son, you know? And like you thought, oh my God, what, what what does he mean by that? But here you have a film of this young man blowing himself up, obviously into thousands of pieces and stuff. Um, what does happen in the aftermath of these events is that they do gather the bits together and they are put in a kind of grave. But he, he wanted to that father wanted to bring his son back home. He wanted to lay, even although it's hard to believe that it was very much to lay to rest, <coughs> he wanted to lay his son to rest and bring a, bring a kind of closure to this open grief process. Maybe to give a closure to this dream process too, of the, the feeling that you could close up the wound of mortality. And again, it's common in lots of cultures is that we lay our ancestors to rest. Um, they're at peace. And then we go on with the rest of our lives. Every so often we have to do various rituals to make sure that they're still happy in death. Um, but that's part of the natural order of the world for these things to resolve themselves by having a proper funeral, a proper rite of burial, a proper end to the grieving process. I'm really curious, have you ever had a dream of your brother or your father after they died? 
Did I? I um, I've often had dreams um, when I've been researching, uh, studying people's lives in journalism. Um, people who are, you know, people who you focus on, you spend an awful long time um, talking to people about them. And in some ways, yeah, you can, you have kind of like a shape. You can uh, begin to, I suppose you could almost like obsess about who that person was and what they thought and what they did. You know, I spent a long time, for instance, um, I just researched the life of this Anairi informer, a man who was reluctantly blackmailed into becoming an informer. It's it's like a school story, like you're part of a gang, and then you betray the gang, and uh, you betray them against the outsiders, and then eventually you, the people who you grew up with, who are your friends, who you're related to, are all part of the gang. They find out that they've betrayed you, you've betrayed them, and then they kill you. And that's what happened. So once, obviously, if you spend an awful long time um, thinking about someone like that, I wouldn't say it's like a kind of dream, but you can think, is this, what do they think? Or what would they be like? Or they begin to become a bit of a presence in your mind. I could put it like that. So you actually haven't had like nighttime kind of dream with... Uh any of them or the uh the people you write about um i would say that you can ha have uh would you say moments of a kind of illumination where you um i'm not i can't say that i've ever communicated with them um what i would say is that you i suppose that you begin to build up such a strong construct of them in your head that they their images sort of take shape, and they maybe yeah they do occur in your dreams as as always like messages, whether the messages are coming from another world or whether they are a confabulation of all these different facts and interviews and and renditions by other people of who that person was and what they thought and what their life was is a is another question yeah that's a question i don't know if it'll ever be answered but it's interesting to see some of the dreams and you're right some of them they almost have like a message quality to them other ones are like sometimes just in the background they're like one of the characters of the dream so that's cool you've you've experienced some of it um throughout your journey and some of the people that you actually investigate and I never thought of that and that's kind of interesting of dreaming of the people like actually seeing them you know again um, or for the first time uh in your dreams and someone that you've actually you know spent a, a bunch of your time finding out who they were what they were like and then you actually have the opportunity to sometimes even probably meet them that's kind of cool yeah well you spend um i don't really want it's, there's a lot of the dark stuff but you know i maybe it's also it, as a writer it can be an act of imagination but i um I've spent a lot of time looking at old murder files for reasons. Um, yeah, we 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 talked about something called uh, I guess the Tetris effect. Someone said that kind of like if you play you know Tetris or game video game during the day, you start to kind of dream about it during night. And yeah. I can imagine with you know you're doing tons of research. I mean, I, I think I read somewhere you spent ten years investigating the IRA, kind of researching yeah. and getting involved. So I could imagine there's a lot of 
images that kind of uh, leak into your nighttime. Yeah, I mean, you can have, um, I like, I remember this one story I did, which is a really horrible story. Um, it was about a, a man called Robert Mockery who killed his own family, you know, and then you, I wrote a big cover story in the, in the Guardian magazine about it. And I spoke to as many people as I could about him. Um, and there's these very strange peculiarities of uh, these events where these, what you know, they call them family annihilators, where they then, who they kill first in their own family, why they do it, how long they live afterwards, um, whether um, these aren't people who, who run away um, he's clearly he's this kind of murderer, suicide person, and there's always a, a very strange post facto recreation of the uh, as much as anyone can tell of what these events are. You know, after after they've killed someone, they've killed their. I mean, it's it's a very horrible. <laughs> I didn't really. I'm not even enjoying sort of thinking of it again. But I did spend a long time. Um, trying to delve into that man's psychology, and and then inevitably, you. So what did I do? So I spoke to his psych, you know, psychologist in some depth. I took, spoke to his wife's best friend. I spoke to the police officers. I spoke to neighbours, um, and I even managed to speak to. He used to go every couple of weeks to. Um, local prostitute down in a local docks in Cardiff and I managed to speak to her too I mean it was just this little glimmer of who this person was and then obviously this other secret person and how that secret person could then commit this extraordinary violent terrible act to people who he clearly loved uh, and why did he do this and what happened afterwards and the very strange peculiarities of the human psychology. Um, he's not a guy that you want to spend too much time in this company with. I would say that <laughs> I really wouldn't, wouldn't do that. Yeah. Especially with the, we're talking about dreams and talking about, uh, you know, um, advocacy of, of, of people understanding their dreams more. It's a lot like, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier with, with how death is viewed, you know, I think as humans, we have a rich history of understanding dreams, talking about them in, in kind of ancient cultures and, uh, you know, exploring them. There's some culture and every, there's so many different cultures and everybody kind of looks at it differently, but at the same time, uh, there are commonalities, um, and, uh, treating it almost like just as vital as kind of things that, that happen during the day. And that's something that I think uh, we're trying to get back to is, is uh, starting that conversation where, you know, in today's Western culture and society, dreams are uh, neglected uh, for the most part and just kind of uh, looked upon as, uh, I think for the most part, people just don't understand uh, what our relationship really is. Um, in, in general. So I, I think like, you know, I used this analogy uh, the other day where 
you know, in, in society, we kind of look at social media throughout the day. You might spend, you know, an hour or two uh, looking at our Instagram feed or Facebook feed. But, you know, how often are we uh, recalling or uh, dwelling or having conversations about our dreams? Uh, you know, and there are some people who won't share, even if a dream is impactful to them, they, they won't share it with people because they, they don't want to, they feel shameful or they don't want to be labeled um, as an odd person. Hmm. I think in the the way to understand this is p- partly to see in the past where our an, you know our ancestors believed that the boundaries between the spirit world and the natural world were if you sense like paper thin and that that the the one of the main things about the wake is that it's a belief that unless you give the dead the right of burial that they're restless spirits will kind of roam the earth but it will also roam the sort of psychological landscape of the living and you you can see this very powerfully in obviously shakespeare and hamlet where obviously the ghost of uh, mm. king hamlet appears to the younger hamlet and that that shakespeare is obviously tapping in to a, a sort of widely held belief in elizabethan society that the you know the the restless spirits of the dead um can cross over and intervene into the world of the living and one of the bases of the wake really was not just that we need to sort of be kind to the dead person given the right of burial so that they can then cross over they also believe that in this crossing over that the portal to the uh you know, afterlife reopened, and that the, the sort of the dead, the unnatural dead, could push their way into the worlds of the living. So one of the reasons why we sort of gather around and wake with the dead is order to is like it's called manning the gate of chaos, that we're the living are there to stop the supernatural horde appearing and like breaking out and causing chaos and mayhem. And that really is a sort of fundamental, I'd say it's fundamental belief in all kind of religions is that by the proper funereal rites, the proper rituals, the proper prayers, that we seek to box chaos away and restore order. Sometimes, uh, clearly in these dreams, people believe that these are, are sort of messages. Maybe sometimes they're benign messages, and maybe they're not benign me- messages, but they probably fundamentally in that old ancestral belief system is that it could be messages from the from the other world but it's probably a sign of trouble of chaos of something that is unresolved that something that doesn't need something that needs to be fixed um because they you know they wanted the world to be ordered and given that how how famine could come how war could come how disease could come they lived in very sort of chaotic worlds anyway. So the seeking of order would have been seen as a good. Yeah, and I was just thinking, uh I was just thinking about, you know, in, in the Bible there's there's instances, uh more so in the Old Testament where king or you know, a leader will have a dream expert. He'll have a person near him because obviously they, they found it that important. And uh you know, I think the overarching sentiment of that is just that, you know, if you 
they say you fear what you don't understand. And I think maybe we've gotten away from the understanding of the purpose uh, of a lot of, you know, if you have a dream and and all that and the rites and rituals and everything all together related around death. So then that's why maybe I think we kind of generally fear them uh, in today's society. Because again, you know, uh, and and just in my own life, um, I avoided understanding and and understanding and kind of delving into dreams myself because you know I do come from a Christian background and we kind of have this uh, it, aspects of like you said uh, the soul at unrest uh, kind of play around in that in that area so sometimes you know you can have this kind of overarching just general avoidance. And say, well, you know, I just don't, I don't even want to get, I don't even want to go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it, it clearly uh, how how one interprets these things, um, you know, whether they're positive or negative, uh, you know, it can be grounded in that psychological state where you are. You know, one of the the again the problems of the privatization of grief. If you if you don't allow grief to be talked about in public. If you say, oh, well, I know they died, but we just get over it or stay strong or this, then people feel that they, you know, there's no one to speak to, that they internalize these very powerful emotions. And I think that can be quite psychologically harmful and can cause, um, you know, all manner of private psychological traumas because you're not, feeling able to acknowledge the effect of this bereavement upon you in public um, that you people it's like a sort of silent burial and again it's this unhealthiness of, of the western death machine um, you're allowed to by, by keening and lamenting you're allowed to show public sorrow even if you're wearing a black armband or you're like a widow dressed in black you're allowed to say look here I am I'm, I'm grieving I still feel emotional pain um, treat me in a certain way, um, whereas people still feel, you know, they even though we deny people a public mourning and we deny them their grief, they still feel grief inside. So it's that pressure. Where does that pressure then find its release? Um, and does it find it release in a kind of private psychological trauma? Um, is it somewhere reflected back in these grief dreams? Is it a communication? Um, He's got to go somewhere, that pressure. And again, I think that that's that's the value and purpose of things like the wake and the kind of communal way of dealing with death, because it it allows public expression of death, sorrow, grief. Um, Sometimes the people feel terrorized by death. It allows it to take place in public and it licenses it. Yeah. The last question that we always ask people is, if you have a dream today of someone who has died, what, who would that be and what would that look like? Of someone who's died? Well, I've just begun uh, a new investigation about a woman who has disappeared mysteriously. And one of these sort of young college student who has just vanished off the streets. Maybe if it was a grief dream, um, if it was a communication, uh, that would be, um, that would occur. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, 
odd is because my, my part in my world at the moment is turning towards the events of what happened to this woman. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer. But yeah, it's, a, it's, a, answer. <laughs> it's a great answer <laughs> because it'd be cool. Like she like maybe told you a little bit about what to write or the title of your article should be like, it'd be just cool. Yeah. Right. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Indeed. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and being here. Is there any uh, place people can find more about you and the work that you're doing? They can find me on Twitter uh, under, you know, uh, at Kevin.Toulis. That's T-O-O-L-I-S. Um, you can find me on Facebook or you can find me on and the book's called My Father's Wake, How the Irish Teach Us to Live, Love and Die. It's on Amazon. People have, have kind of reviewed it there and people can be able to. It's reviewed in the New York Times. I'd just say kind of if, if people are interested, they can just look me up on the Internet. Be fine. Perfect. Thank you. And uh, okay. appreciate it, Kevin. Uh, I know you got to run, but uh, thank you so much and hope our uh, paths will cross again. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for me having on the show. All right. Uh, that was Kevin Tulis. Uh, he had to run. He had an interview, uh, another interview going on. So really appreciate him having him on the podcast. Uh, it's really illuminating in uh, many different areas. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank him uh, on, again on air for that. Before we wrap up, I actually just wanted to um, give our thoughts and prayers to Alex Trebek, who is actually uh, just got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. So I know he's a, he's a Canadian icon and just a overall general uh, great, great person, great TV personality. So. Uh, if you don't know, he's the host of Jeopardy. Um, so yeah, uh, thoughts and prayers go out to him. So uh, we can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And the children, children's book called Dreaming of Owl, authored by Joshua, can be found on Amazon. There are tips on how to talk to children about their dreams at the end. And as always, we like to wrap up with love and gratitude from us to you. introduced myself you have introduced yourself this is a very good conversation